0: Derek Burks and I'm a writer of historical fiction. I spend a lot of my time thinking about questions on the subject of history such as where does history come from? Now at first sight this might seem an odd question because surely history is history it doesn't come from anywhere it's just there. Well that rather depends on what you mean by history. History for most people is not written in a book. Don't get me wrong, a lot of people read history books but most of them don't. For them, history is drawn with broad brush strokes or displayed in neon lights and it comes with big pictures which tell a story and excite the imagination. They get it from all sorts of places the internet, newspapers, radio, films, TV or even friends down the pub. I don't need to read a book to know that gerbils caused the Black Death, because I heard it on the radio. The origin of the word history is the Greek word historia, which appears to mean either inquiry or narrative or story. Now I'm happy with any of those because nowhere in there does it mention facts. History is not about facts. It's not about what happened. It's about what we think happened. The period I write about is the 15th century, which I have studied over decades in some depth. I have spent many hours examining the primary sources and I have read many of the secondary works, the history books, written about the period. Why is it then, that when I watch television programmes and read what people have to say about aspects of this period, I am frequently surprised? I begin to ask myself, where does this history come from? Or, as Blackadder might have put it, how did the war start? The origin of all history must surely be the surviving primary sources for the period. Now the key word here is surviving. I remember a lecture given by the eminent Tudor historian Christopher Haig where he presented two versions of a particular event, describing one as the Daily Mail version and the other as the Guardian version. Needless to say, the two accounts differed not only in emphasis and tone but also in what was described as fact. Both versions omitted some elements and included others. My rather laboured point is that to interpret the primary sources we have to know whether we are examining a fragment of the male or the guardian. So primary sources can't be taken at face value. In the 15th century, as now, people lied. People were biased. People wrote propaganda. They wrote from their perspective. They wrote with certain core beliefs. They wrote in distress, anger, disgust or joy. They wrote in ignorance, in fear and they wrote to persuade others. In short, people writing in the 15th century were not always reliable and almost never well informed by our standards. And that's saying something in our age of fake news. And don't forget we only have the surviving fragments of what they wrote. None of what I have said should be at all surprising to the student of history. I hesitate to use the word historian because it implies an authority that can sometimes be a little misleading. It will come as no surprise then to a student of history that evidence, vital though it is, sucks. So what some folk read in history books comes from the filtered down, rinsed out partially shredded primary sources. Still the good news is that it doesn't matter anyway because most people don't read history books. That's not where their history comes from. There are other much more persuasive influences on our views than history books. Writers of historical fiction must fill in the gaps where the evidence is thin or non-existent. Not surprisingly, they tend to fill in the gaps with something interesting which readers will like. No, really? Yep, want an example? OK, Richard III. Shakespeare wrote a tragical history play about Richard III and Hollywood made films of it too. It has had more impact on the general public's impression of what Richard III was like and what he did than any other work since. It was not a work of history nor did it claim for itself any kind of truth, but its impact has been vast. By the way, will people please stop blaming Shakespeare for blackening Richard's name? He was writing a play. It was no more the truth than Philippa Gregory's The White Queen is. It is not Shakespeare's fault that we all remember it, but a testament to his craft in creating a character that fascinates us. did without Shakespeare, I dare say that far fewer folk would have heard of Richard the Third at all and Hold on to that thought: the character, not the history, is what fascinates us. Whats another example: the Wars of the Roses. The term "The Wars of the Roses is a handy term to describe the conflict between rival branches of the royal family in the 15th century. Roses were sometimes used as badges in this period, but they were less important than many other emblems used by the two houses of York and Lancaster. The falcon and fetterlock, for example, the white hart, the boar, the swan, the sun, etc., etc. So how did the roses' idea take root, as it were? Shakespeare again. Henry VI, Part 1, Act 2, Scene 4, where rivals pluck red and white roses in Temple Garden in London. The 19th century novelist, Sir Walter Scott, also used the phrase in a novel, and from then on it became commonplace to use it as a convenient handle to describe this long and complex conflict. An unfortunate by-product of its use was to imply that the wars had something to do with roses which of course they did not. Someone once told me that they knew the roses idea was a load of rubbish but the wars were still between Yorkshire and Lancashire weren't they? As I said, it's all broad brush strokes. The image of the roses has been used many times by artists and novelists which has helped to keep the idea alive and, yes, I've used it on my books as well. History then is bred up in the public psyche and is not the sole preserve of historians. The two examples I have given are obvious sweeping examples but beneath these lie many many other commonly accepted ideas, some based on questionable primary evidence, some based on a fragment of such evidence and others based on no actual evidence at all. Such fundamental ideas, however tenuously arrived at, and such powerful images are extremely difficult to shift from the public reservoir of what is in inverted commas known. Historical fiction is a powerful means of disseminating such ideas and images because it tries to fill in the gaps in an entertaining way as Shakespeare and Sir Walter Scott did. And as modern writers of historical fiction, however much we have read and however much we have studied, we are writing stories. These days, historical fiction books are made into films and TV programmes and they have a global audience. For many people, this is their main source of history. This is where their history comes from. We should not kid ourselves about this because for all our vast access to information, we are very easily persuaded. We get swept up by ideas more so now than ever before and if there's an image attached then there's an even greater chance of it being tweeted, emailed, Facebooked, pinned and so on. I recall in the earlier days of television news asking an editor how he decided what was included in his TV news broadcast. He replied very simply, for us If there are no pictures, there's no news. Now, an idea accompanied by an image can go viral and fly around the world in minutes. It can gather pace and power until it burns itself out in the ether and is replaced by another, even more persuasive entity. At no point does it need to have any basis in fact for people to believe it. It just has to capture their imagination, their emotion. Imagination is the vehicle then through which history is shaped, promoted and absorbed. We form impressions from all these influences and that is where our history comes from. History is not what happened in the past. It's what people think happened in the past, which is why we argue about it so much.